How does Christianity relate to Hinduism and Buddhism? How are we to understand the core beliefs of each religion? Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today we have with us Dr. Douglas Grotheis, professor of philosophy at Denver Theological Seminary, who also has extensive experience and expertise in apologetics. Dr. Grotheis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right, so today we are taking a, taking a look at Hinduism and Buddhism and comparing them to Christianity. So, um, first off, as an apologist, why do you think it is important for Christians to have a basic understanding in Hinduism and Buddhism? We live in an increasingly pluralistic world, and if we think of the United States, uh, you may have a Buddhist neighbor, you may drive by a Hindu place of worship. I have my students in one of my courses interview someone of another religion, whether that be Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism or anything else. But we are to be witnesses to the saving truth of Jesus Christ. And to do that, we need to know something about the belief system of our neighbors. So it's not unusual in the United States to be confronted with someone who is a Buddhist, maybe from another country, or someone who considers themselves a Buddhist, but was not raised Buddhist. A lot of people today are uh, Buddhists in the sense of wanting to find tranquility in their mind, and they practice mindfulness. A lot of Americans hold Buddhist or Christian viewpoints, whether or not they uh, might say they're a Hindu or a Buddhist. Uh, for example, if someone believes in karma or reincarnation, they're holding to Buddhist and Hindu doctrines. And then we also need to realize that you can't put all religions into the same cup, so to speak. Some people think that all religions essentially teach the same thing or they're all pointing in the right direction. Uh, maybe they just use different symbols or different words, but that's not true. So it's important that Christians know what and why they believe what they do, and then be able to compare and contrast that with the beliefs and practices of other religions, whether that be the Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, or other religions such as Judaism or Islam or whatever it might be. And how would you um, describe briefly the various schools within Hinduism and Buddhism? Right. That's a big question. Uh, we could start with Hinduism because that comes first in world history. Buddhism was a response to Hinduism. But there are certain things that all Hindus have in common with their belief system. I've mentioned two of them already karma and reincarnation. So in Hinduism, you live more than once and you gain good or bad karma. And this extends to all living things, not merely to humans, it extends to cows and insects and everything else. So there's this wheel of reincarnation and you are assigned whatever your status may be in each lifetime, according to your karmic background. So we have reincarnation and karma. There's also the idea of liberation, that there is a way to be free from the confines of matter and energy and really personality and some experience. Sometimes that's called moksha or satchitnanda. There are various words for it. And then Hindus also believe in uh, the inspiration or maybe we should say the sacred nature of what are called the four Vedas. Those are sacred scriptures for Hindus. So we have karma, reincarnation, liberation, belief in the four Vedas, and also uh, the practice of some form of yoga. There are different forms in order to find spiritual liberation. But there are lots of different schools of Hinduism. 
there's a school called the Bhakti School. The Hare Krishnas in the United States represent this school. They believe in a personal deity. So the Hare Krishnas worship Krishna <clears throat> as God. You have other schools uh, like what is very popular in the U.S., which is called non-dualism, uh, which is very pantheistic. It says that everything is divine, everything is one, so salvation is not found in worshiping a separate being, but is found within the self. And there's a famous saying from one of the Hindu scriptures called the Upanishads, thou art that. The idea is that you are one with the universe, the universe is one with God. So you don't want to set up any dichotomy or distinction between God and the individual. In fact, the individual ultimately on this school of Hinduism doesn't exist. And there's a term for that. It's called Atman is Brahman. Atman is the universal inner self and Brahman is, you might say, the universal uh, self without a concept of individuality. So Atman is Brahman means that the individual self is one with the universal self. So you might think of a wave in an ocean. If you look at the wave and you just cut it off here, you might say, well, that's a separate thing. But it really is part of this ocean, and you can't divide it from the ocean. That's one of the images that non-dualistic Hindus use. Uh, There are more subdivisions, but I think in terms of in the United States, a lot of people, even people not raised Hindus, are attracted to this non-dualistic version or pantheistic version that's right at the heart of New Age spirituality, which I've written a lot about uh, over my career, especially in the 80s and 90s. But if a Christian is interacting with someone who identifies as a Hindu, it's very good to have some background information because they will believe in reincarnation, karma, Hindus actually are supposed to believe in the caste system also, because that is in their sacred documents. Now, India, uh, since Gandhi especially, has tried to move away from the caste system, that is India as a nation. But if you're talking about canonical or official Hinduism, then it assumes the caste system. And the caste system is integral to the idea of reincarnation and karma. So if you come to earth in the top class, the Brahmin class, that's because of your karmic background. But I want to emphasize that in Hinduism, and this is true of Buddhism as well, the idea is not to reincarnate in a position of wealth or power or prestige. The point is to leave what is called the wheel of samsara or wheel uh, leave the wheel of suffering entirely because for Hinduism uh, and Buddhism, the idea is that life is full of suffering, disappointment, cruelty, and they don't have a doctrine of creation the way Christians do or Jews do. So they don't believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and said they were good. There's no concept of the blessing of the world as good. We're made in God's image. Uh, Really, you need to escape the world of embodiment and matter. That's the goal, to reach uh, what is called nirvana, uh, which is a term used in Hinduism and Buddhism. I mentioned also Hindus use the term sometimes uh, moksha or Enlightenment, but we need to, we need to be careful in comparative religion to not take our own religious beliefs and then superimpose them on other religions. It's very easy to do that. People can do that with comparing Jesus and Buddha. This is very common. People might say, "Well, you Christians worship Jesus and Buddhists worship Buddha." Well, actually, a good Buddhist will never worship Buddha because Buddha never claimed to be a being worthy of worship. He claimed to be a sage or wasn't even a prophet because he didn't emphasize God at all. The Buddha was either atheistic or agnostic. So 
when we're interacting with people that identify as Hindus or Buddhists, it's good to have the background information. And then also, people are the experts on what they themselves believe. So whatever a particular person believes is important to that person, and it's good for the purposes of apologetics and evangelism to simply ask that person what their belief is. So if they say, I'm a Buddhist, you might say, that's really interesting. That can mean a number of things. Now, what does Buddhism mean to you? What do you believe as a Buddhist? What do you believe as a Hindu? And if you have some basic background as to the nature of Hinduism and Buddhism, how that compares to a Christian worldview, a Christian confession of faith, um, it's helpful, but you, you shouldn't interrupt a Buddhist and say, oh, no, you're not supposed to believe that as a Buddhist. <laughs> that might come up in the conversation. How but, about the um, various schools of Buddhism then? Yeah. Well, that's a complex story, too. But all Buddhists believe in what's called uh, the Four Noble Truths. And this was articulated by a man named Siddhartha Gautama, who supposedly became enlightened after a very passionate search for truth. And the idea is that this man became the Buddha. The Buddha means one who is enlightened or awakened. So Buddha is actually a title. It's not a proper name. It's similar to the word Christ. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth didn't have Christ as his last name. That was the title that he was given as the uniquely anointed one of God, the Messiah, right? So let me go through the Four Noble Truths. The first one is that life is suffering. You might think that's a pretty negative pessimistic way to start, but that's where Buddhism starts. Life is suffering. You have things you don't want. You don't have things that you want. Everything is decaying and everything will die. Life is suffering. The second noble truth is suffering is based on desire or on craving. So why do we suffer? We're not content. We're not at peace. We want things that are unattainable or we have a state, whether it's a disease or a relational problem that we don't want, and we crave something else. And then the third noble truth is that you overcome craving, or, or the way to deal with suffering is to stop craving. Uh, so it's called the cessation of desire, or the cessation of craving. And then the fourth noble truth is that you find this path of cessation from craving and therefore freedom from suffering through what's called the Eightfold Path. And that could be summed up by uh, having right thoughts and right actions, which you would learn uh, according to the Buddhist teachings and within the Buddhist community. So all Buddhists will believe the four noble truths. Uh, there are differences, though, uh, between two basic schools are uh, the Theravada school and the Mahayana school. The Theravada school is probably closer to the teachings of the original Buddha, and that is either atheistic or agnostic. The point is not to worship God properly or to avoid divine punishment. The purpose is to cease striving, cease craving, so that you can attain nirvana and not reincarnate anymore. That's the point. Uh, later forms of Buddhism coming out of what's called the Mahayana school tend to be pantheistic, tend to believe that everything is divine and that uh, the Buddha taught us a way to realize uh, our oneness with the divine. So Zen Buddhism is in that basic category. So with Hinduism and Buddhism, we're talking about ancient and multifaceted religions, but I've tried to distill them as best I can. All right. And so you've already touched on this, but can you say more now um, about what is ultimate reality, both through all three religions, Christianity, Hinduism, and Buddhism? 
Right. Well, let's talk more about Christianity. I, I am a Christian, and I've tried to defend and live out the Christian faith for many years now. I converted in 1976, and might be appropriate to add that as a young man in my middle to later teens, this would have been in the um, early to middle 1970s, I was quite interested in Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism. I was interested in the paranormal and the occult to some extent, not Satanism, but things like out-of-the-body experiences and clairvoyance and so on. And I took a course in college called The Wisdom of India and China. And uh, God had other plans for me to be his follower, so I converted in June of 1976. And I've really tried to go back and look at those religions and look at those interests I had before becoming a Christian, which includes also secular views of life, atheism, and defend the historic Christian teaching. But the ultimate reality, according to the Bible and the Christian tradition and the great creeds of the church and confessions, is a personal and infinite God. So I say personal to distinguish that from the impersonal. So a personal being is one who has self-consciousness, awareness of the other, intentionality, uh, personality has agency. So God knows who he is. He knows everything else that exists. And he is a being who acts, who does things. So I already mentioned in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after he created human beings, he said, uh, the whole thing is very good. So God is a God who acts, After he creates human beings, he speaks to them. So he's a communicative being. He's not mute. He's not the great unknown. God is a God who reveals himself. And we also learn from scripture that God is a trinity. Uh, He is one God, as he said to Israel, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall serve God with all of your being. Jesus repeated that in Matthew 22. But we learn from Scripture that while there is only one God, God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see that in a number of passages, such as Matthew 3, where Jesus is baptized by the Holy Spirit, and the voice of the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see it at the end of Matthew 2, where the Great Commission says, Baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we don't have three gods, and we don't have one god who takes on three different roles, like the Father becomes the Son, the Son becomes the Holy Spirit, that's heretical. But we have the unity of the Godhead, but we have the personhood of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is a perfect relationship. So... This is significant for the doctrine of salvation, certainly, because Jesus is the Christ. He is the what theologians call the second person of the Trinity. So if you go to John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things are made through him. And then it goes on to say, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So I just referenced John 1. 1 and 2 or 3, and then also John 14. And then John 1, excuse me, uh, John 1, 18 says that the Son, or the Word rather, has made the Father known. So he has told us who the Father is. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So I see the interaction of the Father and the Son, and Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to be with us. So we're not talking about three finite entities that get along and have a common purpose. We're talking about one unlimited, infinite personal God who has always existed in this triune relationship. So this is extremely significant for the whole worldview. It has consequences everywhere because if you look at John 17, Jesus speaks of the relationship and communication he had with the Father before the world was made. And we also know from other texts 
that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed and existed before the creation of the world. So when Scripture tells us that God is love, it's grounded in the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and Spirit have been interacting and loving since forever. They always have been like that. And then we know from John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he sent his only Son that we may not perish but have everlasting life if we believe in him. So the idea of, of God as personal, God as triune, God as incarnational, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and Christ came not only to display the Father, but, of course, to take our place through his life, death, and resurrection as our Savior and Lord. So there are only three religions that are essentially and necessarily personal with the idea of the ultimate reality, or we should say personal in a unitary sense. And of course, that would be Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Now, you can find uh, monotheistic elements in Hinduism and Buddhism, but they're not at the center. And you could be a good Buddhist or be a good Hindu without believing in a personal God. That's certainly not true for Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. We're not supposed to be talking about Islam, but let me make a quick point. Even though Islam is monotheistic and Allah is referred to as him, Allah, according to Islam, is utterly transcendent utterly apart from this world, and Islam does not teach that we're made in the image of God. We are slaves of God. The idea of being made in God's image, which only the Bible teaches, would be to make human beings too closely associated with Allah, which in Islam is a terrible sin called shirk. So in Christianity, the the idea of ultimate reality is also related to the reality of human beings, because Genesis 1 and Genesis 5 and Genesis 9 tell us that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. So God, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, is infinite and personal, and we are finite and personal. So on that personality axis, if you will, we have a continuity with God. On the infinity axis, we are far, far short because we are limited in our knowledge and power and goodness, whereas God is not. So that is just a million miles away from um, Buddhist or Hindu ideas. As I said, some Buddhists and some Hindus may be monotheistic, but they don't have that that rich doctrine. They don't have a concept of the Trinity. They don't have the idea of human beings being made in the image and likeness of God. I think it's safe to say for most Hindus and Buddhists, the ultimate reality is not personal, but impersonal. The idea of nirvana in Buddhism, the word itself means to be snuffed out or blown out. So it means what's left when you blow out a candle. Well, what's left of the flame when you blow out the flame? Nothing. So that image of salvation or release or liberation is so different than the biblical understanding. Biblically, if you look at these great texts of the final liberation and salvation of God's followers, like 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrected body, or Revelation 21, 22, the new heavens and the new earth, you see human beings in harmony with their creation, in immortal bodies, in the presence of God, worshiping God and enjoying God's restored creation. I mean, that's the other op- utter opposite of being blown out like a candle or escaping the world of personality, the world of things and objects and relationships. So um, can you give more details about the uh, ultimate reality um, from a Hindu and Buddhist perspective? Well, let's talk about one version of Hinduism, what I f- referred to earlier. It's called Non-dualistic Hinduism, another word for it is Advaita Vedanta. 
there are different schools of Vedanta, Hinduism, but Advaita means non-dual Vedanta, and Vedanta has an emphasis on the Vedas, the four Vedas or sacred scriptures of Hinduism. So the ultimate reality in this understanding is something called Brahman. So I mentioned earlier the idea of Atman is Brahman. Now, what is Brahman? You might think, well, if that's the supreme reality, Brahman must be a personal creator, right? Someone we would worship or pray to. But that's not it. The idea of Brahman is something utterly inexpressible, unknowable, rationally or relationally. So liberation for a Advaita Vedanta Hindu is realizing that you are already one with Brahman. Uh, there is a Hindu philosopher uh, named Shankara uh, who lived, I think, from 788 to 820. If I've got that number. I think I have those numbers correct. And he said that Brahman could not even be described in any way. There is no possible description of Brahman. And it's interesting that uh, Shankara said if you're at a lower level of awareness, you worship Brahman as a personal being. But that's a lower level. The higher level, you transcend the idea of the personal, the relational entirely. And you, you kind of go from uh, grade school to college, so to speak. You go to the higher level. Now, according to a biblical view, you're going in the wrong direction because personality is the deepest, truest, most eternal fact of existence, period. Uh, God reveals himself to Moses by saying, his name is I am who I am. So that's the statement of a personal, self-reflective being who is communicating in knowable language. And that is utterly antithetical to this idea of a Brahman uh, without qualities, a Brahman beyond language, beyond thought, and so on. And in Buddhism? Yeah, in Buddhism, there's no concept of Brahman, because Buddhism is a response to Hinduism. And one of the things that the Buddha denied was the doctrine of a universal self, or a Brahman. And he emphasized... Uh, the individuality of everything. Now, Buddhism teaches that the self doesn't exist. Now, a non-dualistic Hindu would say the self doesn't exist as a finite, limited entity because it's one with this universal self, this universal substance. Now, Buddhists say, at least the Buddha and I think Theravada Buddhism, I think Theravada is closer to the Buddhist original teaching, they'll say, there is no individual self because there's no self at all. There's no larger, greater Brahman self. In fact, the Buddha taught that the self is an illusion. So enlightenment is finding that the self is an illusion. And if it's an illusion, then it doesn't have any desires. So it can be free to get off the wheel of reincarnation and attend, or rather ascend or attain nirvana. But nirvana is not a person, it's not a place, and it's not a thing. So what is it exactly? You have to use just negative language. It's not self. It's not individuality. It's not cessation. So for a Buddhist, the self is actually a collection of states called skandhas. And the image that Buddhists like to use is that of a chariot. <clears throat> so you think of a chariot, it has a seat, it has wheels, it has an axle, etc. But there's no chariotness. There's no essence. It's a collection of parts that work together to have a function. And the Buddhists use that analogy or that metaphor about the self. We, like a chariot, are a collection of parts that happen to be together for a time, but there's no self or selfness or sub substance to who we are. 
if we think we have a self, then we try to gratify that self or we're discontent that the self doesn't have what it wants or it wants or it has. It doesn't have what it wants or it has what it doesn't want. But if you get free from the concept of a self at all and you realize you're merely a collection of states or skandhas, then supposedly you're, you're free from illusion and you can attain nirvana. So you see how different that is from the biblical perspective. I mean, think about Buddha in relationship to Jesus. Buddha never presented himself as a prophet of God. In fact, he said the idea of God is irrelevant to salvation. He never presented himself, obviously, as an incarnation of God worthy of worship. Jesus accepted worship several times in his earthly ministry. And in the book of Revelation, we see all the redeemed worshiping him. But Buddha is not an object of worship. Uh, Buddha is considered a sage, that is, a wise person. In Buddhism, you have this idea of dharma. The dharma is the teaching, the eternal teaching, which the Buddha apprehended when he was enlightened, and that's what we call the Four Noble Truths. So we have a a very different understanding between Christianity and Buddhism of the ultimate reality, uh, the nature of the founder of the religion, uh, Jesus or Buddha, And sometimes this is confused because you can take some of the moral statements from Buddha and Jesus and find a similarity about being compassionate, for example, not being materialistic, things like that. But that doesn't mean they have essentially the same worldview. It just means that human beings have some knowledge of what is morally good and even non-Christian Religious leaders may be very articulate spokespeople for what is morally good in some ways. That doesn't mean that their metaphysics, uh, their ultimate view of reality is identical or even very similar. They're not. I mean, we have moral knowledge as human beings because we're made in God's image and likeness. And even the non-Christian has some moral knowledge through conscience. Paul speaks of that in Romans 2. But, for example, I have a little book. Uh, I think it's just called Jesus and Buddha. And the book has very few words on it. It's kind of a ripoff. But you have one word, one phrase from Jesus on this page and one phrase from Buddha on the other page. And you see similar, 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 similar. But for one thing, they're taken completely out of context. And they don't mention the worldview behind what Jesus said or the worldview behind what the Buddha said. So how does this tie in then to the human condition? Right. For each religion. Yeah, I think it's good to talk more about the biblical understanding of sin uh, in relation to the Hindu and Buddhist idea of, of karma and ignorance. On the biblical view, sin results in the estrangement of God and human beings and also the disordering of the self such that we don't really know who we are and we don't treat people properly. So we don't love God with all of our being. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. So it's all about a broken relationship, about wrongdoing, of guilt, real, objective, moral guilt. And God is the one who atones for our sin through the work of Jesus Christ. He pays the penalty that we could not pay and he bears the punishment that we deserve. He, Christ reconciles us to the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, with Hinduism and Buddhism, you have the idea of, of good and bad karma. So there's a sense of doing what's right, doing what's wrong. But what needs to be understood is that you pay for your bad karma, and you receive the benefits of your good karma. So it's a moral system where you end up determining your karma, and the idea is to neutralize your karmic state so you can transcend this wheel of suffering and karma entirely. 
Now, there are some concepts of grace that come into some forms of Buddhism and some forms of Hinduism. They're not as rich. They're not as deep as the biblical view. In fact, they're not based on anything historical or knowable. Uh, We know that Jesus came full of grace and truth, and he showed that love and grace through his cross. So we have good objective evidence to believe that God is a God of love and justice and grace. We don't have that in Hinduism or Buddhism at all. So the idea is that we're somehow ignorant of our true nature. So in Buddhism, we think we're a self, we're not a self. We need to overcome that ignorance through knowledge. Uh, Hinduism, uh, there are different accounts of the self, but we need to leave the world of illusion and discover the world of, of reality, of oneness with Brahman, or some other higher state. But the problem, according to Christianity, is sin, which is moral transgression against God and neighbor. It's all very relational. You do have the idea of good and evil in Hinduism and Buddhism, but it's tied into a karmic system. And in karma, there's no grace. There's no forgiveness of sin. There's no idea that God would make provision for you such that he himself provides reconciliation. Now, yeah, there are savior figures in Hinduism and Buddhism. That's to be expected. Human beings know that we fall short. We know that we're in trouble in many ways. And so we look to heroes and saviors. So even in generally false religions, you'd expect there to be hero personages and savior personages. But the real issue is, what is the deep metaphysic behind the idea of redemption? The biblical view far different than the Eastern view. And we have historical evidence that grace and truth became flesh and bone in Jesus. And this is written in historically reliable documents. We're not talking about stories of the Buddha that we got four or 500 years after his lifetime or stories about Hindu deities that don't even pretend to be historical. They're just mythical ideas uh, that have inspiration, or if they claim to be historical, let's say about Krishna, there's not adequate historical evidence to back them up. So what else would you say about the spiritual liberation or salvation from Buddhism and Hinduism? And also, while um, if you could touch on the notion of illusion or maya within Hinduism as part of that... Yeah, and that's something I should have mentioned at the beginning, that all Hindus believe in some concept of maya. Now, they might uh, describe it in different ways. So let me talk about that for a minute. Uh, The idea of, of maya is that people live in ignorance. That, for example, I just was watching a special on the rock opera Tommy. And Pete Townsend, who wrote Tommy, or most of it, uh, has a Hindu worldview. He follows, follows a guru named uh, Meher Baba. And at one point, he talks about life is an illusion. And he says, it's kind of under, hard to understand what life is an illusion means. And I thought, you're darn right it does. Uh, because we are human beings in relationship with other human beings. There's an external world that God created. We have a moral sense that is often correct and should guide us. So uh, if we're talking about, let's let's go back to non-dualistic Hinduism, which is often my reference point because of its impact on the West. But if you think you are an individual person in a world of other individuals and that you have relationships and there is a world of nature distinct from you, And if you are apart from God, then you are in the world of Maya. You don't see things, you don't understand things the way they really are. So to be enlightened is, in a sense, to take a kind of mystical eraser and erase the distinction between you and anyone else, between you and nature, and between you and God. So let's say you have it laid out on a piece of paper, you, nature, and God. You erase those boundaries 
those distinctions, and then you write on there, Atman is Brahman. So that's the reality. You go from Maya, the world of individuality, particularity, duality, plurality. You move away from that into the true reality of total oneness. Okay. Now, in the Buddhist understanding, uh, you move away from the idea of a substantial self in any sense to the idea that reality is made up of no substances whatsoever, that you yourself are not a substance, you're not an enduring self that in some way stays the same over time. And once you are liberated from that concept of the self and you stop desiring, stop craving, then you can attain nirvana. You can go from ignorance to reality. But see, in the biblical understanding, uh, the, the unreality is denying our moral status before God, trying to excuse ourselves or pardon ourselves in some way. So you see that in the garden when uh, Adam and Eve are ashamed uh, of their status and they would rather um, flee God's presence. And that's been the pattern ever since. You know, we're trying to cover up our sin and that's an illusion. So first John says, if anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself. First John 1, uh, 8 through 10 is that passage. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And see, this is why the saving work of Christ, the cross, is an offense to people. It's not because it's illogical. It's not because there's no historical evidence that Jesus died on the cross. It's that it zeroes in on our sin, our rebellion against God. So if we're not willing to lay down our arms and confess our sins, then the cross will be offensive to us. That's the essential illusion on a biblical worldview. We exist as individual creatures made in God's image. We exist in a world of other individual creatures, human and otherwise, the great animal creation. There's a larger world, the earth, the solar system, the universe. Those are all real, objectively real. God created them. They're based on God's creative action and God sustaining the world through the word of his power, uh, through Christ, Hebrews 1.4. I believe it is. It's Hebrews 1. So that's not an illusion. Uh, another illusion, biblically speaking, is something you might see referred to in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that is the idea that what is good on earth is permanent. Uh, Ecclesiastes says, if you trust in your prestige, your power, your own wisdom, you will be disappointed uh, because life is not always fair and riches do not often satisfy. But as the writer says, the end of the matter is to fear God and keep his commandments. Know who you are before God. So Ecclesiastes doesn't say, individuality is an illusion, uh, the separation between you and God is an illusion, but still, as human beings under the sun, as that phrase is used so many times, we think we're more secure and more stable than we really are. We are finite and fragile creatures, and we're sinners. So the end of the matter is fear God and keep his commandments. And uh, one of the commandments we find in the New Testament is from the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. He says, God now commands everyone everywhere to repent. So God commands us to repent. We need to because we're, we're rebels against God. So that idea of repentance, Jesus said, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the first thing he said in his public ministry after he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. So we need to repent. We don't look within for salvation. I was watching a documentary, the one I referred to earlier, and someone very confidently said, you know, all the great religious teachers said to look within to find truth. And I was watching that with my wife, and I just yelled out, no! <laughs> no, Jesus didn't. Moses didn't. Isaiah didn't. The Bible doesn't. No, you look within, and you find, yes, you're made in the image and likeness of God. But 
out of the inner person comes immorality, as Jesus said in uh, Mark 7 and, and many other passages. And we know the great passages from Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death and so on. And so then with Hinduism and Buddhism, their salvation um, has to do with knowledge. Can you say more yeah. about that? And also while you're talking about knowledge, um, if you could tie that in with um, Adam and Eve and the fruit um, of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. Because I think there's a parallel there. Yeah. Well, the Eastern systems really make salvation dependent on uh, knowledge. Now, we do too. We talk about uh, the knowledge of God through Christ and knowing what the gospel is, but it's personal and relational, and you don't have to somehow transcend your rational faculties to have this knowledge. In Hinduism and Buddhism, it's a very non-cognitive, mystical, in the bad sense of the word mystical, knowledge. Uh, and it's like Gnosticism in that respect also, which is a whole other subject, obviously. But when you go back to the garden in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, especially 3, uh, you see that uh, God put them in a place of thriving. He, they were in a relationship with him, with each other. They had a commission to have dominion over the earth, to tend the garden. But they listened to the voice of the serpent, which challenged them to do the one thing that they were not supposed to do, which was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they had the knowledge of God. They actually had the knowledge of the way of following God. But what what Satan said in the guise of the serpent, and we know the serpent was Satan from Revelation 12, 9, the great serpent that deceives the world. You don't know necessarily by just reading Genesis 3, but you look at the rest of Scripture, you see it. The serpent is saying, God's holding out on you. There's some secret knowledge that you need to be truly fulfilled or to be truly satisfied. God is not really giving you everything that you need. So he tempted them to do the one thing God told them not to do. And that shows human rebellion against God, autonomy. And of course, that was the fall. And then with the, the pursuit of knowledge in uh, the Eastern religions, um, you said you mentioned it's mystical knowledge, but could you yeah. go into more depth there? Well, mysticism can be good or bad. I mean, you can use the word mysticism to mean uh, a deep awareness of God. And there is a strong mystical tradition in Christianity, which doesn't become unbiblical. Uh, it's more like knowing God in a very direct way as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, or maybe uh, John seeing the risen Christ in John in Revelation 1, 12 through 17, something like that. But a non-Christian view of mysticism is transcending the personal, the relational, and the rational into something which is called an ineffable experience. Something is ineffable, it means it can't be discussed at all. That's not a biblical understanding of God, because God is a personal, moral, relational being who makes himself known through creation, through conscience, and through revelation, through speech. He talks. He speaks to us, and we're made in his image. So we're language-using beings, and God is the original speaker, if you will. Right In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made through him. So biblically, and in the best of Christian mysticism, the knowledge of God has to do with a greater intellectual awareness of the character of God and a deeper relational engagement with God or awareness of God's presence. But biblically, uh, the revelation of God or the manifestation of his presence doesn't just overwhelm 
the cognitive or relational faculties of a human being. It might be traumatic. Like if you look at Isaiah 6, Isaiah's in the temple after King Uzziah died. It was a time of national crisis. And he sees the Lord high and holy and lifted up. And the train of his robe fills the temple and the the angels are crying out to each other, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. These are all states of awareness, cognitive and affective awareness. And Isaiah says, after this great revelation, woe is me, for I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord. So he knows who he is in relationship to this exalted, ultimately exalted being. And he thinks that he's going to be destroyed or punished. But God ends up forgiving him and redeeming him. So I take that passage as extremely significant for what a revelation of God to human beings can be. Now, we don't have to have experiences like that to know God, to be redeemed, to be justified, to be in a relationship with God. We don't have to have those kind of supernatural revelations of God. But uh, some people have had those, but they need to be tested, right? Because 1 John 4 says, test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. And the test there is Christological. You know, has Jesus come in the flesh? So if someone said they had this tremendous experience of God, and in that experience, God told them that all religions are from him, and whatever way you choose is the right way, I'd say, wait a minute, I don't believe you, because I know otherwise. You know, I'm testing the spirit here, and the spirit is not good. It's an unholy spirit, not a holy spirit. So as far as um, scripture and history, especially as scripture relates to history, how can you compare the three religions there? Well, there's there's so many ways of comparing them. Um, one way that I use sometimes is using some categories we've already talked about, and that is the idea of ultimate reality, the human condition, and salvation. So to be really quick, uh, biblically, the ultimate reality is an infinite personal triune God who reaches out to us in Christ. Uh, the human condition is created but fallen, and salvation is found through the agency of Christ and received by faith, not by works. So if you go to Hinduism, the ultimate reality is in this form I've been talking about um, impersonal, amoral something called Brahman. The human condition is we're ignorant of our oneness with deity, and salvation is found by looking within, getting off the wheel of reincarnation and realizing our unity with uh, unknowable, unnameable Brahman. And then with Buddhism, the ultimate reality is Nirvana, which really can't be named, but it's not a universal self, it's a no-self. And the human condition, again, is ignorance of who we are, but we think we have a self when we don't have a self. And if we liberate ourselves from that illusion of selfhood, uh, then we can attain the highest state, Nirvana, uh, which is not being redeemed through the work of God, it's attaining something through knowledge, and practice. So you can see using that threefold categorization, ultimate reality, the human condition, and spiritual liberation, that, first of all, Christianity is very different from Hinduism and Buddhism. Hinduism and Buddhism have a number of commonalities, but they also have distinctions as well. For example, Buddha, I should have mentioned this earlier, uh, is not considered a Hindu. Hinduism is a very big tent. There's a lot of variety of schools of Hinduism, practices of Hinduism. But Buddha denied the four Vedas as being scripture, and he also denied the caste system. And those are two essential factors of Hinduism. So he's not a Hindu, but you can still find similarities between Hinduism and Buddhism, because Buddhism is a response to Hinduism, which maintains some of the aspects of Hinduism, like karma and reincarnation and the concept of maya also. 
So it seems like many people are scandalized by the historical particularity of Christianity, especially the cross and the resurrection. So could you say a little bit more about that in terms of how Buddhists or Hindus might see that? Right. Well, Hinduism and Buddhism don't say anything about Jesus in their sacred scriptures because their scriptures came uh, or they just don't mention Jesus. They either came before Jesus uh, or perhaps some of the Buddhist scriptures came after the time of Jesus, but they don't talk about him at all. So uh, a Hindu or a Buddhist is going to have to use his or her worldview to interpret Jesus. So a Hindu might say, that Jesus was a guru, or maybe even an avatar, maybe even a revelation of God, but they could not understand Jesus as the Bible understands Jesus because he is without parallel. He's not one of many avatars or manifestations of God. He is God incarnate who died once for all to atone for the sins of the world. Now, a Buddhist, again, Buddhist scripture doesn't talk about Jesus at all, but a Buddhist might say, oh, he was a sage like Buddha. In fact, there is a Buddhist monk by the name of Han who wrote a book years ago called Living Buddha, Living Christ, and he tries to show that Buddha and Jesus actually teach essentially the same thing and are both from the same ultimate reality. But what Han does is he takes a Zen Buddhist worldview and imposes it on the biblical text and imposes it on Jesus. And the Jesus he comes up with has nothing to do really with the real Jesus. Now, if I'm going to be talking to a Hindu or a a Buddhist about Jesus, I'd say, (coughs) first of all, let's see what the Bible says about him. And what it says doesn't fit Hinduism, doesn't fit Buddhism. And if you're scandalized by the uniqueness and the particularity, the issue is, well, did this happen? Did God come in the person of Jesus? Uh, Did he work miracles? Did he die on a cross? Did he rise again from the dead? And I've expended a lot of work in my career to try to show those things, in fact, happened. So if they happened, then we have to deal with it. And we should not just deal with it by recognizing it, but we should embrace the gospel. We should repent and come to Christ with the empty hands of faith and believe that he is Lord and Savior. And so John 1 says, uh, to those who believed in him and received him, they became the children of God supernaturally. So I'm thinking there of John 1, uh, 12 and 13. Those who believed him, received him, became children of God, not born by natural descent, but from God. Now, how about the subject of social ordering in in Christ? Christianity, of course, we have the church, the body of Christ, and Paul goes to great lengths to describe the nation and purpose of that. In Hinduism, you have the caste system. What more could you say about how these different religions consider humanity in its terms of its social grouping. Yeah. Well, that's certainly a really big topic, but maybe I can narrow it down by saying that you have no idea, no sense of a caste system in Christianity because, or Judaism, because you have no concepts of karma and reincarnation. So you're not locked into a status for your whole life because of what you've done in a previous lifetime. And the Bible teaches that all of us are made in the image and likeness of God, whether we're male, male, female, Jew, Gentile, young, old, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. And so we have a certain status before God, and we should be respected as such. And that idea of the sanctity of the individual is really behind Uh, the Western concept of universal human rights, the dignity of all people, and so on, even if some of the proponents of these ideas don't want to admit it. But you can't really justify a high view of human beings and universal human rights without a biblical understanding of human beings being 
in the image and likeness of God. If we're just evolved animals, we're here for no purpose and no reason, you can't metaphysically support a high view of human beings the way that we can biblically. And Hinduism and Buddhism don't have the kind of high view of human beings that Christians do either. So the doctrine of the image and likeness of God is extremely significant for not only how you treat individuals, but how societies are formed. Uh, You see this in the Declaration of Independence. I've been writing about this recently that Jefferson, who is not a Christian, but he says that we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Endowed by our creator with unalienable rights. All men are created equal. He gets that from scripture, whether whether or not he wants to admit it. It doesn't mean we're all equal in ability, talent, strength. No, but before God, we're equal in the sense that we are all equally bearers of the divine image, and we have rights given by God, whether or not the state recognizes those rights. So it's a very revolutionary statement, and that kind of a statement could not be generated out of a Buddhist or Hindu worldview. Now, Buddhists and Hindus might gravitate to some of the concepts of the significance of individuals and equal treatment under law and so on. But especially in Hinduism, it just doesn't come out of the worldview. It doesn't come out of a caste system idea at all. Now, as I said, Buddha renounced the caste system. So there's a bit more of equality among humans in Buddhism than you find in essential Hinduism. But even there, you don't have that doctrine of being made in the divine image. You don't have the idea that God himself took on the divine image in the person and work of Jesus. Just not there. And finally, um, what would you say to Christians who might have an opportunity to witness, to share the gospel with Buddhists or Hindus? What um, words would you leave with them? Well, certainly pray. Pray for opportunities to witness to your faith to anyone, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, atheist, whoever it is. Ask God to give you opportunities and ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom. We always need to love our neighbor. So a Hindu or Buddhist is not a perspective to refute. A Hindu or or a Buddhist is made in God's image, and God loves them. And God sent his son to redeem them. Whether or not they believe it, that's the purpose of Christ. God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Whoever believes on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And listening is very important. James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And be gentle. So 1 Peter 3.15, famous apologetics verse, says to always be ready to Have a reason. Give a reason for the hope that you have, but give it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. It's very important to listen, to be uh, kind, to have the fruit of the Spirit. Just because you're doing apologetics, which involves some give and take and back and forth and argument, doesn't mean you have to get angry or impatient or uncivil in any way. But having some background about these religions uh, is helpful. Some basic apologetics, which I've tried to give here. I didn't give, I gave, I guess, some of the negative apologetic against Hinduism and Buddhism. I didn't talk about some of the logical problems with karma and reincarnation. If you uh, simply Google my name and car and put in karma and reincarnation, you'll find some work I've done on that. So it might be appropriate Because no one is going to become a Christian if they think their worldview is just great. If they think their life is fine and their belief system makes sense, why consider another one? So we can talk about what Christianity is, and that's going to challenge their their perspective. Let me give you a very vivid example of this. I once met a man who was from India, and he was in the Dalit group. They're actually outside the caste system. They are the lowest of the low. They're untouchables, historically. And when this man first heard the gospel, he heard two things that spoke to his condition profoundly. 
One was that he was a human being. He was taught by his parents he was not a human being. And he was a human being, and that means being made in God's image and likeness. And he was also told that God loved him. He had never heard anything like that in Hinduism. As a Dalit, he had bad karma. He was stuck in the Dalit lot for his whole life. The only hope he would have is maybe in future lifetimes he could build off build up enough good karma to ascend the caste level and eventually find salvation. So with someone like that, you didn't have to do a lot of apologetic work. You simply say what Christianity is, and it's so different from the Hindu message he heard that he just latched onto it. It answered his heart's deepest longings. That's a beautiful story. With other folks, it might take more work. You might need to engage the apologetic endeavor a lot more thoroughly, and that can be done. But whenever it's done, and whoever it's done with, it should be done with gentleness and respect, and it should be done in a way where we're quick to hear, slow to slow to speak, and and slow to anger. In fact, I say don't get angry at all (laughs) in apologetics. There might be some cases where anger is appropriate, but I would just leave it out entirely of apologetics. All right, good words. We've been with Dr. Douglas Grotheis today of Denver Theological Seminary, learning about Christianity as it relates to Hinduism and Buddhism. Dr. Grotheis, thanks so much for being on the show. You can check out Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith, and Dr. Grotheis' other books by going to his website, douglasgrotheis.com. Just follow the link below. I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been watching The Charge. Peace to all of you.